You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, yet again, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. So we are on the road again. On the with, road uh, from traffic courts. With uh, Driving Law. That's why we're late with the podcast today, because it's uh, Friday afternoon. Yep. And uh, I'm not using an electronic device. Am I? You're the one who's holding it. I mean, you're... You're not operating the features of the device. You're just talking. Just having a conversation with you. It's passive use. So uh, hopefully, I'm, hopefully I'm okay. Anyway, it's done in traffic court. That was a good, successful day in traffic court. It was great. And I also okay. always enjoy the there very stressful days where I'm in a judicial review, but also have multiple traffic court matters and need to bring my computer and hope I'll be done and get you know, you to come to cover for me on either side when I need to pop in from one and out from the other. I resolved one of your traffic court matters for you. You did. Your client did very well. And you resolved the other traffic court matter. And your client did very well. And you completed your judicial review. And I completed, you did two hearings. Yeah, I did two IRP hearings. hearings. I, did, uh, I did one. Yeah, so, a, you know, a typical lazy Friday for yeah, yeah. <laughs> human law. The only thing is Thursday night, we didn't have an opportunity the podcast no um because on thursday night i had to record a different podcast the cd world podcast okay this is the one that's uh that's run by our friend yes it's run by some friends and uh they had me on to talk about beer and pizza so you know if there's beer and pizza i'm picking that over you i could go for some beer and pizza right yeah i'd rather wings right now pretty hungry yeah, I could eat some chicken wings. All right. Well, we'll think about that as we drive. As so, we drive. Uh, what is um, what is on tap for the lots, podcast? Lots of driving law this Man, week. Lots of driving and law. And I think we truck protest start. is done. Yeah. And, uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine, a miserable thing is happening. Patrick King denied bail. No surprise there. Nope. They played his recordings in court. The recordings of him, and it's basically like the judicial justice read it out after the bail hearing. Just fuck this. Fuck that. Fuck them. Fuck your mom. Yeah. Well, I mean, he clearly knew what his plan was there. He was from out of province. He wasn't a flight risk, apparently. They weren't concerned about that, but they weren't concerned he was going to continue to do it and also tertiary grounds, apparently. Yeah, um, the whole gun having thing. No, he didn't. And they didn't put that in, or it wasn't, oh, it wasn't, uh, wasn't relied on. Because the this morning things changed very suddenly. I think there was I, an application by the, the of yeah. The I, I listened this morning to the bail hearing okay. up until the time that I had to start doing my work. Okay. Okay. Um, and there was a big discussion this morning about whether or not the crown could reopen its case on the bail hearing to provide evidence that Mr. King had uh, been in possession of a gun at the time that he was arrested but also that he was on probation in Alberta 
that the Crown apparently didn't know about. Oh, well, the Crown... Or which con- included a no firearms condition. Uh-huh. And then after his probation, or after his sentencing, the chief firearms officer also cancelled his firearms license. And the gun that he had was a restricted weapon. So not only did he not have a license, period, he also had a condition not to have a gun and had a gun. But I don't know whether the evidence was allowed in the end. Well, it's a bail hearing, as far as I'm concerned. It should have been allowed, but I think the JJP had already made the decision on the yeah. basis of, of um, the problems with the surety, which uh, was the surety he had met only weeks before, who was at the protest, um, who uh, um, I was there the whole time and denied that there was any problem and was like clearly basically in codes with him and was, could have been charged alongside of him and may not be, but... Was and, there, so you know, I know that when I meet people within a couple weeks, I'm usually like signing over title to something I own that's worth the most money fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, the amount they offered. Anyway, there was no good reason for him to get out. Now he's in jail and uh, waiting his trial. But, uh, I don't like anybody to be in jail at any time, I'd rather people just comply with the law. But if you're going to apply the law, I would have to say that was the circumstance to do it. Yeah, I, I wasn't surprised. Anyway, big wins for Acumen Law this week. Two big wins. Yeah, oh, wait, Louisa, we we've had two wins today. This afternoon. Louisa got decisions on two judicial reviews that she argued, uh, both successful. Um, the first one was a case called Gibson, and that was actually last week, but we didn't talk about it. Well, we didn't learn about it really yeah. uh, until afterward. It's been reported in the news. Uh, it's an interesting case because it's we've had when COVID came out, we had the initial problem with COVID, which was the danger of providing a sample, and then of course we had people after that who had COVID, long COVID, or had COVID when they were actually there trying to blow. Yeah, and, and struggled to blow as a result of COVID or long COVID symptoms. And the the always shocks me. Yeah, you had COVID. Is it the alcohol sensor FST? That's the roadside breath tester we use in British Columbia, which is the basis upon which people are issued immediate roadside prohibitions, 90 days, or three days, or seven days, or 30 days. That device in the manual has no instructions for police officers for any time that the person has a medical condition. Um, there's a on their narrative that asks whether or not the person indicated they had a medical condition. Um, people don't necessarily know that they've got diminished breath capacity, but the manual does not anticipate anyone ever having a medical condition. The manual doesn't anticipate COVID. Well, of course not. But any other medical condition. But you'd think they've had all this time. What the pandemic's been two years now. They've had all this time to go. Oh, you know, people with a respiratory pandemic illness that's been killing people might not be able to blow. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, we've, we've argued that many times. We've succeeded many times. We didn't succeed at the hearing for um, that individual in the first instance. I don't know if that was no. us. And the part of the reason why was because they said the adjudicator relied on her knowledge, training, and experience to sort of supplement the evidentiary record that was before the adjudic uh, before her. So she, instead of going, the manual says that you have to provide a minimal amount of airflow 
She interpreted that to mean, based on this perception of knowledge, training, and experience that wasn't disclosed, that it only required minimum error. But that's not what the manual said. That's why I mixed up minimum and minimal there, but the other way around for the minimals. Um, But it wasn't that it was a minimal amount of error. It was that there were minimum parameters that had to be met. Just like you must be this tall to ride. Yeah. <laughs> and that she instead like misinterpreted that evidence in a way that meant that Mr. Gibson, whose doctor provided a letter saying like he can't he wouldn't be able to do this, she was able to reject his doctor's evidence on the basis of that by creating a standard that Mr. Gibson couldn't know to meet and that his doctor couldn't know to respond to. So we got the decision with the adjudicator writing this way and filed an application for judicial review. You filed it, provided a wrote a written argument in the petition, and the police went and, and argued it. And uh, ultimately, the BC Supreme Court uh, came to the conclusion that it had to go back for a rehearing because of the error the adjudicator made. Yes. And so now this got in the news, which is interesting because. Uh, much to our surprise, um, the general public have not had not considered the problems of people with yeah. injured lungs from COVID providing samples. And I bet that nobody higher up outside of adjudication in the superintendent's office considered it. And then we have this other story that arose after this story got in the in the newspaper and was on CBC. I heard it on CBC yesterday morning. Or Louise's decision. Um, I heard of this other fellow who had uh, um, a muscle injury of some sort, a partial paralysis of his yeah, face. Yeah, he had, a, he had, been in, he had um, had a stroke, and it left him with a partial facial paralysis, and he wasn't able to seal his lips around the breathalyzer. I gave an interview uh, to City News about this, yeah. and uh, there's an article if you want to read it. Um, but yeah. Not our client. Not our client, no. Um, there's people who've had Bell's palsy. Uh, they can't necessarily form a seal on it. Uh, my client uh, years ago had polio uh, uh, when he was a child. He couldn't form a seal on the mouthpiece. But see, that was a criminal case. And these IRPs, it's very different. Because unlike in a criminal case where you get the charges and then you have the opportunity before you serve any of the consequences of the criminal offense, you have the opportunity to speak to the Crown to um, assert the issues that uh, that affect your client, to gather the medical evidence, to submit it to the prosecutor. You know, you've got all of these procedural opportunities to say, this was a wrong situation where I was falsely accused of refusing and where I have a medical excuse before any consequences befall you. Whereas with the IRP scheme, and this was the big concern for this poor individual um, and for our clients and you know thousands, thousands of other of people um, you serve all of the consequences and there's nothing you know nobody's giving you your money back for all the taxis you had to take nobody's paying you back for all the money you're out you know because you missed work or whatever the case may be even if you are factually innocent even if you never had a drop of alcohol in your body like this individual I went and got like three different blood tests to prove it. Yeah. You still could not 
get your money back for that. And that to me is just appalling. Like, how can a system be fair where you have to serve the consequences before you prove your innocence and then prove your factual innocence and you get no compensation and there's no method of compensation? Well, I think the, the court's um, view that we, we see all the time that um, ultimately that driving prohibition ends up being entirely served and that you don't get a stay of the prohibition when you've done a judicial review seems to overlook the impacts of the driving prohibition for people. And I know, you know, it's always easier to sympathize with somebody who uh, is in a situation like yourself. And if you're a BC Supreme Court judge, you're doing your best to try and understand the situation of that individual, but you're leading a different lifestyle. You know, like if you're a BC Supreme Court judge, you can afford to take a tax. Uh, and if you are you have been living as a lawyer for the 20 years before you became a judge, uh, you know you you don't realize what it's like to be a person who needs to be in your car driving and needs to have a clean driving record. And, and three years, even three, after three months of a driving prohibition, uh, you know you lose your home. <laughs> uh, and it's that people don't seem to realize, and they, the, the judges sort of focus on uh, in, in, in these state decisions that you don't get over this hurdle to establish the damage uh and it's it's like the almost impossible to quantify damage right yeah yeah so that was louise's great decision very happy about that yeah happy for her that uh, she made this argument it was the uh, they're always hard arguments right because the the decisions always have so many different things in there and you're doing your best to try and explain and you're trying to figure out why is this wrong? Like, it's also hard because even though a BC Supreme Court judge is legally trained, has a minimum of 10 years experience practicing law before they're appointed to the bench, and sits there day in and day out hearing complex legal disputes about things that are, you know, objectively more serious in many cases than driving prohibitions, like, you know, bankruptcy and foreclosure and murder trials, you know, um, where, yes, a driving prohibition can have those types of consequences, except for murder. Um, but but if it's a foreclosure application, somebody's losing their house, for sure, unless the application's not granted. You're on a tangent now. Yes, I am. The, the tangent I was on was that even though you have a judge with all of that training and qualification and experience, they have to defer to the decision of somebody who is not required to have any legal training. Well, some do. Yes. Um, and some uh, don't have legal training and, and assess things with the uh, skill and capacity of a, an experienced lawyer. But yes. there's also people who are just in service uh, employees of government who have uh, I just, got I've, to this job and, and feels like they're reverse engineering a decision. Man, I don't, I don't like the concept of having a judicial actor have to defer to a quasi-judicial actor. Well, in particular, where it's all on paper, there's no oral evidence given. And the judge can look at it, you can look at it as was commented in early decisions that uh, overturned in our uh, at the Court of Appeal, but a judge looking at it is, is in a no better position or worse position than the adjudicator. So why not do it anew? 
Now, the second case that Louisa had was also, weirdly, a facial paralysis case, but that was not the reason why she won. In fact, that argument was not successful because there was not sufficient evidence of the medical condition. Um, because at the time of the hearing, it wasn't diagnosed. <laughs> so get the evidence you don't have. Um, the, this it was issue, under investigation. Yeah. The doctors were looking into it. So the issue in this case was um, the individual had gone out to a bar or a restaurant um, and then had some drinks and then decided to wait uh, in their car for someone to come pick them up. And the question that arose was whether or not they were in care and control of the motor vehicle. And the adjudicator provided lots of different reasons for rejecting his evidence that he wasn't in care and control, like that it didn't make sense that he didn't wait in the restaurant, which the court was like, that's like a completely speculative, groundless basis to reject his evidence because there was no evidence that the restaurant even remained open at that point in time. And secondly, um, the restaurant is going to invite you to yeah, lounge around and they uh, occupy a table. We don't yeah. need to turn tables. That's not the nature of our business. Um, the The second thing that they used to reject his evidence was the fact that there was a risk just existing on the basis of the fact that he was present in the vehicle, well intoxicated, that he would change his mind and decide to drive. That's such a uh, difficult thing to reconcile with case law. Um, ultimately, I, I I I think we should probably write a blog post and put up a billboard that says, "If you need to sleep in your car, get in the back seat." Yeah, honestly, um, because people get in the front seat of the car and they're thinking to themselves, "I'm not going to drive. I'm not. I've had enough to drink. I don't may not feel impaired. Maybe I do feel impaired, but there's not a fucking chance I'm going to drive." Um, and risk my my car and a potential criminal conviction and what have you. And so all sorts of people make that decision. They think, I'm just going to get in my car and I'm going to sleep it off. And they get in the car and, you know, you have to, in order to start most cars, you have to sit in the driver's seat these days. And so they get in the driver's seat. I mean, you could, you could sit in the passenger seat if it's a car with a key. You can turn it on. There's no chance that you're going to put that car in motion. You're pretty safe. When you're in the back seat. You're even safer. And yet, Mr. Bach was in the back seat of his car. Yeah. This is the Bach case that was a companion to Lemieux at the Court of Appeal. He was in the back seat and still found to be in care and control because yeah. there was a risk he would move to the front seat. Yeah. Like the risk is, you know, when when this test was established, it was meant to be that the risk of driving was not merely theoretical, but grounded in evidence. But it's been distilled down to if you're drunken in a car, the risk is probable and concrete, not just on those facts alone. And it, there is effectively now the way that this has been adjudicated, a prohibition on sleeping in your car if you are drunk. And that's so wrong. But Louisa succeeded. Louisa succeeded, succeeded for different reasons. Yes. And she succeeded because despite the fact that the adjudicator spent all of this time going over the analysis of where uh, or whether there was a risk, the adjudicator never went into the analysis of where the vehicle was because the Motor Vehicle Act only applies to cars, drivers that are on a highway or industrial road. And this was in a parking lot, and there was nothing else really fleshed out about the parking lot to be able to say that this was a road, highway, or industrial road. 
the superintendent took the position on the judicial review that essentially, because this argument hadn't been raised at the original review hearing, she couldn't argue it on judicial review, except for whether he was a driver is the ground of review. And that question was uh, squarely within the... Well, that was, that was the, the dispute. It was disputed on the basis of the fact, claiming I'm not a driver. Um, the issue in the end was I'm not a driver on a road or highway, yeah. as opposed to I'm not a driver because I was in my car uh, and I had no intention to drive. Yeah. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. I, and there were some other issues in there well, with respect to I would to the, like to say yeah. on that issue being interesting. That's exactly the same argument the superintendent made way back in 2013 when I did the McKnight case. Yes. Where Mr. McKnight and his lawyer at the time had not argued that he was on a Howard Industrial Road, but the adjudicator still did an assessment of whether he was a driver. And it was in issue in the review hearing in that case because the adjudicator put it an issue but in any event if you're going to consider the issue you have to consider it fully and the court cited mcknight for an example of where that happened and the proposition that yeah there has to be some analysis of a parking lot to determine whether the parking lot is a highway or industrial road uh, i think this one is going to be appealed i i get that sense yes so has had uh, two successes now. The first one, I think, is going to stand, and the second one, I think, is going to be appealed. We'll see what happens. Um, but I also think that the issues that we were not successful on in that decision, that she was not successful on, also probably need to be revisited. But yeah. that's for another more in depth. I think we should probably talk about. About what, Paul? The cell phone case from the BC Supreme Court? Yeah. So there's another cell phone decision, and this one is less rooted in law and more rooted in facts, and also the decision of the of the um, judicial justice. So uh, this was a, a case where now I'm, I'm driving, so we'll see whether or not I can remember all the facts well enough. Um, I think it was Mr. Singh. Is that his name? Yep, Mr. Mr. Singh. Singh. It's Regina uh, and Singh, Canmore uh, Paul Singh. Uh, 2022 BCSC 277. So I think it was in Surrey, and um, he was purportedly, according to the officer, and now been convicted of, um, I think in the right-hand lane, and uh, the officer said that he had his cell phone in his right hand, uh, low down, and the officer could see the lit screen, and he was in like a Lincoln Navigator or something like that, like a... Uh, large vehicle and the police officer was also in a similar vehicle, um, you know, an SUV or something. And the police officer claims to have been able to see the phone and the police officer had notes. And Mr. Singh came along and testified, no, he didn't have his phone uh, and that he was innocent. And during the course of the evidence, it came out that Mr. Singh had made notes as well, but he hadn't brought them to court. And the police officer put some questions to him that I think were inappropriate questions about uh, about his notes, not bringing them to court, and and asking him, was this the same case? I think he asked him the ticket number, uh, which is <laughs> ridiculous. Like the officer cross-examined him. And officers are not, I mean, they're not experts in cross-examination. Some are really good, but um, I think we all expect that they're not going to be perfect in traffic court. 
Um, and uh, ultimately, the judicial justice rejected Mr. Singh's evidence. And partially, he said, the police officer's not relying on his memory. He's relying on his notes. And you're relying on your memory, but you, for which you have notes, but you have brought them here. And I'm not as confident of your memory uh, as I am of the police officer with his notes. Uh, and ultimately, he was convicted, of course. So it went to the Supreme Court. The court has confirmed the conviction. Um, and um, there were problems, in my view, in the in the judicial justice's decision, um, sort of manner that it was expressed, and, and maybe arguably some of the questions that were asked. But that's the thing about traffic court. Traffic court has different rules, and police officers don't necessarily know the rules of evidence, and uh, judicial justices make decisions more or less on the fly there. If it's relatively reliable, it may be admissible. Um, and uh, I, uh, ultimately, the, uh, the court came to the conclusion that the reasons that were given by the judicial justice were sufficient um, and uh, that the evidence had been properly weighed and rejected Mr. Singh's evidence. So there's a takeaway here, Kyle. What's the takeaway, Paul? The takeaway is, A, you can make notes after the fact, and that's not a bad thing to do if you, if you feel that you're innocent. I mean, a lot of our clients want to necessarily put them on the witness stand. It's an issue of testing the evidence from the police officers. Uh, police officers' evidence when we get to court. But if you feel that you're innocent and you, uh, you know, you've just been uh, issued a traffic ticket, uh, take notes. Take notes quickly, uh, relatively contemporaneously, preferably, and make sure that you a give them to your lawyer, or b and or me bring them with you to court. He didn't have a lawyer. He was doing it on his own. Well, that's um, the real lesson here. Well, that's the other takeaway, of course, but that's self-serving takeaways. <laughs> I, I heard the lawyer yeah, it doesn't have to be court. us. No, it doesn't have to be us, but uh, we're, we're probably, we do the lion's share of these things in British Columbia, I think. So, in any event, so that was, uh, that was the takeaway. Not anything interesting, really, in law, because the guy had it in his hand. Yeah. Purportedly. If, if that's... <laughs> Well, that was the line, If that's the evidence that's believed, then that's the evidence that's believed. Yep. So it didn't raise a reasonable doubt. Now, did you get the person I sent you? The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Week. The Week. The Week. The Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. It's a great one, huh? Yes. So this, oh, you go ahead. No, 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 I didn't. You, you've got it open and I'm driving. This is uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch DUI. <laughs> so funny. It's an Amish buggy driver who's accused of DUI. Um, he's driving a horse-drawn buggy so recklessly that there are literal sparks flying from the buggy wheels. It's a buggy DUI. It's a a horse buggy and DUI. buggy DUI. You can get a DUI in a horse and buggy in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And you would think that this would happen in Florida, but of course there's no Amish in Florida, you know, compared to yeah. Pennsylvania, I guess. So, uh, yeah, guy in a horse and buggy uh, tooling down the road and uh, apparently as, as described as all over the road, which is a meaningless phrase that people use. Um, we all, all, we all sort road. of know oh. what it means, but it's not really ever evidence. Oh. Um, but uh, it's it's often put in as evidence, but it doesn't really tell you a whole lot. 
but yeah, pulled over and uh, and for DUI. Now I did not know, or I don't know, if you can drink if you're Amish. Um, yeah, I, I I would have assumed you couldn't, but I think maybe you can. Well, I mean, you might be breaking the rule. I could see Amish people like making beer. We've had clients who were uh, members of religions where alcohol is permissible and yet they drink. And yet they somehow get, yeah. Yeah, I so, think I had one client once whose who's defense on the IRP was, I don't drink because I'm Muslim, but it was Ramadan, so I was allowed to drink after sunset. I, was like, I don't think that's how it works, I'm not sure. but I'm not sure. I'm no expert. I am not an expert on your religion. All I know is the Bible seems to say don't drink, and yet uh, wine, wine is a, okay. I a just necessity. Put, I just put Ken Amish into Google, and the first suggestion for me was Ken Amish drink alcohol. And the answer and is... And New Order Amish uh, prohibit alcohol and tobacco use, but Old Order Amish do not. Who's in the Bible? Yeah. Booze is in the Bible, so there you go. As long as you're not New Order Amish, which I guess maybe New Order Amish has an electric buggy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of the band New Order. Do not know. You don't know the band New Order? No. Oh, okay. That's what I see. That's what I was thinking when you said electric buggy. I was thinking of uh, I was thinking of uh, new wave music from New Order. Yeah. 80s band. Anyway, so that's it. That is the podcast. That's the Ridiculous Driver of the Week, who should be from Florida, but was actually from Pennsylvania because uh, he's home. Yeah, you stole my line, but that's okay. If you need to get in touch with us, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. And check out the CD World podcast on pizza and beer, featuring yours truly. Thank <laughs> you.